but until you speak to someone who is from that community and hear their stories and their narrative that they invite you into because these are painful stories to share it is not um it is not a joy to share those stories um it is sometimes even a point of shame to share those stories until yeah. you empathize with that community don't be so quick to type be like the book of james says quick to listen slow to speak slow to become angry Hi, this is Pastor John. And this is Pastor Tim. And this is Every Moment His. It's a podcast that takes a look at how the gospel impacts our everyday lives. And uh, normally we go into a sermon that we preached previously. We talk about that sermon a little bit more, but we're doing something we've never done uh, today. We're having a guest, uh, Pastor Gerard Bowling from Bethlehem Lutheran Church in St. Louis. Uh, So welcome, Gerard. Thanks. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Uh, What's the weather like in St. Louis? Um, it is rather hot here, okay. <laughs> as always. Um, always steamy down in the STL. I remember the uh, St. Louis humidity, right? Yeah, yeah. That was the thing. River Valley. I think it's it's unforgettable when you go to St. Yeah. Louis. It's like sometimes it's the hottest place in the country because yeah. of that humidity. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. We've got some humidity today, but nothing to complain about compared to St. Louis. So, well, on today's episode, we want to address the issues of racism and social justice, and these are issues that are at the forefront of our nation right now. Um, and these issues are often polarizing, uh, misunderstood. Uh, as we get on Facebook, you see all kinds of memes and different posts and everything. And and so, what we want to do is just be able to ask some questions. And, and listen, have you share your story a little bit, Gerard, uh, so that we can better understand. In fact, we're taking you up on an offer here. You posted on your Facebook page, and I'm going to read this verbatim. You said, as a black male, I volunteer myself to enter into dialogue with anyone who is having a problem wrapping their heads around the social injustices faced by African Americans. I do not speak for my entire race, but I am willing to give you a thoughtful expression and a spectrum of feelings that will add perspective to a narrative you may not completely understand. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that invite and uh, the vulnerability of jumping on here with us. So you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I meant every word that I said, um, uh, helpful, uh, glad to be of help in any way. So just before we get started, can you just give us a little background on your your family, your life, your ministry? Uh, You're doing some doctoral work, too. Um, Mm -hmm. I saw on your Facebook page it said, uh, get dissertation done. (laughs) Something like that, right? It's my motivator. That's why I put it up there. You know, I got to do that. So, um, yeah. So uh, I was born and raised in New York City. Uh, New York City kid. uh, Became Lutheran when I was like 10 years old. was baptized then. Uh, my parents uh, are not Lutheran. Um, so it was my sister and I uh, together um, kind of walking in that. My sister is an LCMS deaconess, went through Concordia Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's serving still back out in New York City. Um, I went to Concordia Chicago and I studied theater. Um, I wanted to study anything but theology, right? I thought it was cool um, to study something different because uh, I knew I wanted to be a pastor, um, but I wanted some other experiences and exposures and things like that. Um, so I got my 
bachelor's in theater. I minored in languages, learned American Sign Language in college, uh, went to Concordia Seminary fully expecting uh, to be a deaf minister somewhere, like mm. full-time deaf mm -hmm. ministry. Uh, and God had plans for that, but he also added other stuff to it, right? Um, so uh, my first year I was at Holy Cross Lutheran Church for the deaf uh, as a field worker. Um, and I was approached that year um, by Pastor Schmicky, uh, who had said, hey, you know, we have some deaf ministry going on at Bethlehem. We'd love um, for you to be involved in our thing. We're really starting something new. It's not as established as Holy Cross, uh, but we'd love to have you. So I sat down, I met with him. Um, I, I automatically clicked with that guy. I knew we'd be friends for life. Um, and when I saw the ministry at Bethlehem, an urban ministry mm -hmm. that was explosive um, as far as reaching kids, um, young black men and women and uh, giving them value uh, and appreciating them for who they are and loving them for who they are uh, and the dynamics of worship and, and the way the community rallied behind the church. I wanted to be a part of it from the start. I was hooked from that moment. Mm -hmm. um, I remember walking out of that meeting and being like, yep, I'm, I think I'm going to be at this church for a long time, right? Yeah. Um, and so I was. Uh, I came on staff doing deaf ministry and then slowly uh, family ministry added to it and then youth ministry and it kept piling on. Then I was a vicar uh, and I was called there in 2016. Uh, to serve as pastor. Pastor Schmicky and I don't really have distinctions of pastor stuff. Um, we both call ourselves pastor. Um, we are co-pastors uh, and co-partners uh, in our ministry. Uh, so that's been really helpful um, too. Um, our ministry at Bethlehem, like I said, is very urban um, and it is a context uh, in which we deal with a lot of different things. Um, we deal with all the things that relate to systemic racism uh, inside of our people. Uh, we deal with all the hurts that that relate to economic trouble um, and socioeconomic trouble um, as well. Um, but one of the coolest things about us is that we're a family, you know? Mm. Um, we call ourselves the Bethlehem family. Um, we're a ministry uh, where we walk together um, and we learn about one another um, through the lens of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so you can only ask to be in a place like that. Um, as far as my other educational goals, um, uh, I am in a doctoral program uh, at Concordia University, Wisconsin. It is the Leadership Innovation and Continuous Improvement Program, LICHI. Um, and I am in my dissertation, dissertation phase. So uh, I'm almost done here. Uh, I finished my interviews. So my research, I finished that yesterday, quite literally. Oh, yes, right. the last one. Um, so I'm going to be doing some coding here and then finishing up my writing. Um, and then I should be done soon. And I'm knocking on wood as I say that because no roadblocks. I don't want to yeah. do those. Yeah. Um, it's a marathon. Uh, yeah. I should be doctored up pretty soon. Um, I also teach online at Concordia uh, in Texas. I teach in the leadership department and then also uh, in the theology department occasionally. Um, and I teach at Concordia St. Paul uh, in their theology department. And then most recently, Concordia Wisconsin asked me to teach a couple of nonprofit courses as well. well you kind of have your hands in all kinds of things there. Yeah, yeah they're, they're full. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, sounds like and it. So thanks for making time today. I know you probably got a lot going on. So. Uh, you know, just one question I want to I want to just open up with is I think, and I don't know, Pastor Tim, if you'd agree with me on this, but I think sometimes you know, being being white, sometimes there's a lot of of discomfort in like I don't know how to talk about these things or what terms I should use, and just to kind of address that openly, like like even terms like African American, Black, mm. people of color, 
I think I've yeah. seen people respond negatively from to each one of those to things. each one of those. And, <laughs> yeah. and so I, can you just talk to that for a second? Yeah. So exactly what I had put out before um, about that spectrum, there's always going to be a spectrum of mm. where people are at. Uh, and I uh, am not going to speak for every black person ever. Right. As we never should. But I'll, I'll talk about the spectrum a little bit. Um, and where I fit on it. Um, for me, I prefer to be be called Black, um, uh, Black American. Um, that's my preferred language. Uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, preferring to be called a POC, is what people say, people of color, um, or um, an African American. Um, you know, I think that as long as you ask that person uh, what they're comfortable with first, um, mm -hmm. then uh, they'll definitely respond. And everybody has, what I do know is everybody does have a preference, you know, okay. um, of what they prefer, so. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, we've got some questions here. So, Pastor Tim, yeah. you want to jump in? Well, I think you've kind of mentioned some of it, but, you know, uh, many people have maybe never been to St. Louis in particular. And I know when I lived in St. Louis, um, I started to learn about the different regions in St. Louis, North St. Louis, uh, you know, across the river in St. Louis. Uh, but also, St. Louis is a very segregated town. It was actually kind of purposely built that way. They put the Italians over here, uh, the Jewish population over here, the Irish over here. So in the context where you're at, um, talk to us a little bit about, you know, what has the experience been like of ministering at a congregation, primarily in the black population, and especially going through these, these social rifts that we've seen uh, along these race lines in the past few years and then just recently? Yeah. So good uh, in mentioning the polarization of St. Louis. I think that's definitely a huge thing. Um, a difficult thing about even where we are at Bethlehem in North City, Hyde Park is the name of our neighborhood. Um, our church has been there for 171 years. We're mm -hmm. a really old Lutheran church. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually predate the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and most of the businesses that are in St. Louis. And when they built Hyde Park, um, they built that neighborhood for upper middle class people who were going to be working in what they then thought would be the city of St. Louis. And things kind of changed a little bit um, of where that development would happen. Um, and that uh, sort of triggered some of these hard lines that you guys have experienced even uh, as you spent time in St. Louis for the seminary of, of where people are at and where they tend to locate over time. Um, so, you know, we have a city county divide in St. Louis uh, where it's thought of that if you live in the county, you're a little better than people that live in the city. Um, and then within that, in the city, um, we have a north and a south divide as well too, right? So blacks live in the north and mostly whites live in the south. Um, and it is all kind of polarizing language that's used and uh, and all those kind of things. Um, and then we have this other kind of phrase that's thrown in there of white flight society, um, where St. Charles and Wentzville and some of those outer neighborhoods that were created were created because people who lived in North County uh, who were white wanted to keep moving out uh, to move away from African-Americans and, and the influence of African-Americans. And so a lot of these cities and these counties um, were put together um, and then also built on um, sort of um, racist ideas ideas, you know, uh, and polarizing ideas to begin with. Uh, and even though people may not still live in that or choose to live in that day to day, uh, as people are just born places and grow up there, um, there's still a lot of hurt that's carried with that tension. Um, our spot, Bethlehem, is located in North City, 
Um, and that's thought of as uh, uh, the all black area, right? Um, but then also thought of as the economically depressed area uh, between North City and East St. Louis. You know, uh, the only thing that people tend to know about North City is that Nelly grew up in the Ville. You know, he <laughs> yeah. grew up in, New York City, in, in North City. Um, and so that's what we have, I guess. We've got Nelly, but um, it is a difficult, uh, it's a difficult area, um, but it's also more complicated than people think. Um, and the economic structure of it is um, not all that's to be said about it. Um, there are nice houses where we're at. In fact, our church was a part of putting up um, over 296 nice houses uh, that people live in. Um, and the neighborhood is coming back in a lot of different ways. Um, and it's not just all about economic depression either. So just a quick question about Bethlehem, though. So the, the history of Bethlehem would have probably, if I'm right here, would have been pretty much all white German folks. And then there was there that white flight thing from even the congregation that people just moved out and then kind of left the congregation there. Is that kind of the history? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so Bethlehem originally started as, um, as an all uh, white German congregation, right? Um, when our original church building fell a couple years ago um, in the corner, you can find the cornerstone where the old Germans would keep um, the hymnal and some other artifacts. And I remember us even attempting to touch that stuff and it just disintegrated, right? That's how old it is. Mm -hmm. um, it must have come over from the old country. Um, but yeah, even into the um, the 80s when Pastor Schmicky was called there, um, the church had dwindled um, and it's a thousand seater church originally, mm -hmm. right? It had dwindled from all these Germans that walked to church because you got a thousand seater church where you got no parking lot. Um, so that <laughs> means that you had to have walked in order to fit into that church. Um, and so uh, we had dwindled from that number um, to about 30, 40 people um, who were in worship, uh, who were just kind of looking for something else to happen, um, primarily white and German um, and older. And they knew they didn't reflect the African-American community around them. And they knew that it was a problem that they didn't reflect the African-American community around them at that time. Uh, so since that time, we've gone through a lot of transformation, obviously, um, uh, through Pastor Schmicky's ministry. He's been at Bethlehem 31, year, uh, 31 years now, and I've been there um, just, you know, seven-ish <laughs> or something like that. Um, but through his uh, ministry, a lot of transformation has been able to happen um, inside of the church um, with people of color coming in, African-Americans coming in uh, to a point where about 95% African-American right now um, and 5% other, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so my white wife is the minority at our church. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and those are good things too, because we learn things about people who don't look like us as well, so. So, you know, I think that I've been reflecting on this a lot lately that when I grew up, I grew up in a mostly white suburb in Omaha, Nebraska. And in, in my experience, you know, I went through elementary school and we'd have Black History Month. We'd talk about Martin Luther King Jr. And in my mind, I kind of grew up thinking, you know, racism was a thing that existed in the past. You had slavery and then that was over. Mostly in the South, I kind of saw the North as like, you know, they weren't involved in that. And then, and then, oh, you know, there was segregation in the, in the 60s that, and that, that's done with. And so in my mind, racism was a thing of the past. And, and so that was my experience being in my mostly white community. But can you talk to, you know, we talk about perception and reality. Uh, can you yeah. talk about, you know, maybe my perception and then the reality uh, that, that the black population's living in? 
Yeah, so racism is most certainly not over. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we see that even in just the mass groups of people who are marching right now uh, and who are fighting for social justice and the voices that are coming through on that as well, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little later. But um, to that, uh, there's this idea called systemic racism mm -hmm. that African-Americans will um, speak about. And really what systemic racism is, is exactly what you hear in the word, right? System, you know, that this is a system, this is set up that way. Um, and when uh, Lincoln freed the slaves, um, everything was supposed to go like this, right? We were mm -hmm. supposed to immediately be free and equal to everyone else. But uh, since that point, um, systemic racism brings up the fact that African-Americans are still fighting for freedoms um, in different ways um, and in different facets of society that have by design, by a system, um, been set up um, to keep them back. Uh, and so the best way to describe this would be, um, you know, there are certain conceptual things that uh, people would bring up about an African-American that they'd say, well, the reason why they do that is because they choose that when really the system is rigged mm -hmm. so that that would happen. So the easiest way to describe this would be um, with the issue of uh, redlining. Um, for example, uh, neighborhoods are by design, um, designed to be certain groups of people uh, living near one another um, via class and then also via color. Um, and that locking in of neighborhoods and separating them uh, from one another and then the uh, desire to not loan money to African-Americans to purchase a home. Everybody, and most people need a loan to buy a home. Um, how do we lock them out of that as well? Uh, changes the way that a city is built or a county is built, right? Um, that was done on purpose by design so that African-Americans would live together in shanty towns or ghettos as they would call them uh, when everybody else would enjoy where they lived. Um, that would be a product of systemic racism. Um, also on top of that, sharecropping. Um, sharecropping is basically slavery light, right, back in the day. And, um, and then they say, well, sharecropping is over. Sharecropping really isn't over because of what we see on most corners um, in African-American communities, payday loans. Um, if you need money uh, immediately because you've got to meet needs, well, why don't you get a loan with 150% interest rate? And then just work. And when you work, your check will go to that loan, but at least you'll have money um, to put people really, really far into the red um, rather than being in the black like some other families are, um, you know, financially. And so all of these things are done on purpose by design. They're not accidents at all. Um, they are products of systemic racism in America so that African-Americans um, would not be as uh, well off or far ahead uh, as some other races. When... Um... When you talk about that, um, you know, certainly there, there is these kinds of things in poor white neighborhoods as well. You know, you'd see uh, check it a cash, you know, these kind of uh, predatory lending usury, you know. Um, what's, is there an intention there as well, or is there kind of a distinction between the way that has occurred in poor white neighborhoods and poor black neighborhoods? Well, I think poor white neighborhoods are a little less by design and a little bit more by accident, right? Um, and so they occur, they happen, they're grouped together, um, and it's a financial status or a financial piece, um, but it's not because of the color of somebody's skin. Um, it's literally because of the content of their character and what they've achieved or have not achieved. Um, and then it can be changed generationally rather quickly. Um, uh, and then for African-Americans, generationally, it typically doesn't change um, for many, many many, many years um, over time. Also, um, 
I think for African-Americans, when it comes to prejudice, prejudice happens no matter what class that you're in, or racism happens no matter what class that you're in, um, as you're seen as a threat no matter what. Um, so, you know, a poor white American from a neighborhood can dress up nice and then walk down the street and look okay, right? Whereas an African-American, our skin color, we cannot wash it off or take it away or do anything about it. Black is black, <laughs> right? Um, and if I'm wearing a hoodie, but I'm a millionaire, I'm still a target at that point, um, just because I am an African-American, um, whereas uh, less threatening behavior is connected to um, the skin color when it comes to white people, um, and more threatening behavior is connected to skin color uh, when it comes to African-Americans. Pastor mm. Bowling, if you're, if you're comfortable doing this, can, can you talk to us maybe about, you know, because I guess my concern here is that, you know, it's easy to come out and, and say we oppose race, racism, and, and most people will say that, right? But, mm -hmm. but what we don't do is go into specifics, right? And, and, you know, repentance always has to do with specific things, right? I mean, and I mean, can you share some specifics, maybe if you're comfortable from your own life and, or, or from the people in your community that you serve? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in New York City, uh, and I remember it was just me and my sister grow, growing up together. Um, and my mom and dad were married. They've been married for years and years and years. So that was a rare thing in the neighborhood we grew up in. Um, and I remember they really they really worked hard when we were young um, and they were able to purchase bikes for us, right? Um, and so we're out in Queens. Um, uh, the beach is right there, Rockaway Beach. Um, and you can ride across the beach into this neighborhood called Broad Channel um, that's right in the city, a really beautiful neighborhood um, that's awesome to ride through uh, if you've got a bike or a scooter or something like that. Um, and we were just old enough um, to the point of where we could ride through that neighborhood together by ourselves. So I remember my sister had her bike, I have my bike, we're ready to go, we've got helmets on, um, and we're off by ourselves. Uh, and we're, we're driving through, we're riding through this beautiful neighborhood um, on our bikes, and we see this group of people that's ahead of us. Um, and from the distance that we were at, it looked like they were waving at us, and they were saying hi. And my sister and I are ringing our bells, and we're doing this and that, and we're like, woo woo, we're on a bike. Um, and as we get closer to them, we realize that they're not waving that they are giving us the middle finger. And as we get closer to them, we realize that they're not saying hello, they're calling us the N-word. Um, I wanna say I was about 10 at that point, nine. My sister was probably 11. Um, and I remember my sister saying, let's ride as fast as we can. So we rode as fast as we could past them. We stopped on the side of the road. Um, she used her then clunky cell phone to call my mom and dad uh, and they came to get us. And we had a conversation about race right in that car. They said, don't you ever drive through, ride through this neighborhood again. This is not the type of neighborhood you ride through as a black man or a black woman. Um, and there were so many things in that moment that were formative for me. Um, hmm. I'm, I'm nine, right? Yeah. And my mom's like, you're a black man. You know, and my sister's like 11, you're a black woman. You know, they don't care about how old you are or how you look, um, you know, as far as what your appearance is, how you're dressed up, um, they'll come for you simply because of your skin color. Hmm. Um, and since that moment, you know, on, I've always been really hyper aware of that, of where I am, um, of how I'm interacting with people uh, and how I represent myself which I think at that time, if I spoke to nine-year-old me, I would say, I'm really sorry you have to deal with this because it's unfair for a child to have to deal with that. 
Um, if I spoke back to uh, eight-year-old and five-year-olds of, of other households who were my same color, um, I'm sure they would agree that they are dealing with the same type of thing, um, where there's this constant fear um, of where you're at um, and how you look um, just because of the color you are. And, you know, I, I've heard a lot of similar stories, you know, from uh, as I've been listening and, and, you know, and, and one of the things I've heard is, is um, conversations between, between parents and children. And uh, I've been listening to uh, Between the World and Me, and, and that's one of the big points there is, is conversations between parents. And, and, you know, just I think in a lot of people's context, we wouldn't even be aware of that, right? I mean, because, and um, so I wanna, I wanna ask a little bit now just about some, some words that maybe might get people a little riled or confused or, you know, because social media is an interesting place, to say the least. Um, We could say a lot of other things about social media, but, you know, so I want to talk about two. I want to talk about Black Lives Matter, and then I want to talk about uh, social justice, because those are two things that I see people will get even, you know, Christians, white Christians sometimes will get really inflammatory about these things or say, I refuse to to be a part of any of these things. And can you just talk about both of those, uh, Black Lives Matter and and social justice? Yeah. Um, So I'll preface it by saying, um, and I seriously, for the life of me, I've talked about this a lot, but I can't remember if I made it up or if I learned it from someplace. Um, I think that this whole entire thing, this whole movement is three-pronged. You have to come at it with three prongs. Uh, The first prong is education. Um, to educate yourself. I love that you said you were reading a book. Um, I hope many people are reading books and watching podcasts and figuring out um, what it is, um, you know, uh, that they're listening to or they're looking at over the internet. Um, I I hope people are doing that piece, that education piece. Um, The second piece is empathy. Um, There's, um, it's really easy to stare at a blue screen, right? And to type anything you think off of your fingertips. But until you speak to someone who is from that community and hear their stories and their narrative that they invite you into, because these are painful stories to share. It is not, um, it is not a joy to share those stories. Mm -hmm. Um, It is sometimes even a point of shame to share those stories. Until you empathize with that community, don't be so quick to type. Be like the book of James says, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, or in the translation of the Greek, really, slow to express, right? When you become angry, it's an extreme expression. Um, that is what is the translation of that word, extreme expression. Don't don't have an expression yet. Just wait, you know? Um, so that would be my second piece. The third piece would be go ahead and walk alongside a person of color right where you're, you're at right now and serve them and love on them. Go ahead and walk alongside them, a POC, uh, a Black person, if you have a Black person in your town, um, and walk alongside them and really hear them and get to know them um, and understand them. It's sort of like the second piece, but it's more of a how can you help? What can you do, you know, um, with that third piece? Um, I think speaking to those two points that you just brought up, Black Lives Matter, um, we've got to make a distinction between um, the organization and the movement. Um, And I think that's the hardest part of the BLM um, movement. So the BLM organization started in Orlando, Florida, 
um, with a few women um, who wanted to speak up for black rights, but also LGBTQIA agenda um, as a whole. And so they organized a popular phrase um, and they put it into an incorporation state uh, where it was an organization. And sometimes people get that organization confused with the movement language. I compare it to Kleenex. Like if I said, hey, pastors, you know, pass me a Kleenex. Mm -hmm. What would you pass me? You would pass, yeah. pass me tissue, right? You'd pass that to me yeah. and I'd wipe my nose with it or wipe my eyes or whatever else. Um, sometimes we confuse um, the, the object, which is facial tissue. That's what it's called. You know, anybody can make facial tissue. Walgreens can make facial tissue. Um, sometimes we confuse that with brands um, and those are not things to be confused with. Um, so the organization uh, that endorses LBGTQIA and some other violent tendencies of Black Lives Matter should be separated from the statement in isolation, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter simply brings up the fact that the lives of African Americans are something that we are concerned about right now. We're concerned that, on average, an African American in confrontation with a police officer or anyone else otherwise um, is subject to much more prejudice and much more violence, and then also uh, a pretty good chance of loss of life as compared to other people. We're concerned with that, and we want Black people to know that Black lives matter. Um, and we want all people to know, yes, all lives do matter, um, but we're concerned about these Black ones right now. And if listeners are still having a hard time wrapping their head around it, sorry, I'm talking a lot, but um, I compare it to um, something I love that our Synod does every year, the March on Washington um, for uh, for kids who are unborn um, because they are murdered through abortion, um, 122,000 kids a day murdered through abortion. Blows my mind every time I hear the number, personal to me for real, but um, I, I plan to be there one day. I'm gonna be marching on Washington when the world is back to normal, right? Um, I'm gonna be marching on Washington myself um, because the lives of those babies matters and they're voiceless and they are innocent uh, and they deserve to be heard. And I'm gonna stand with them um, and I would be a fool if I stood up in that crowd with my megaphone, if it was louder <laughs> than everybody else's, and with a sign, if it was bigger than everybody else's, that said, all babies matter, my baby Monroe, who is uh, turning two pretty soon, her life matters, especially when she wears her pink tutu, she looks so cute, right? Um, people would probably throw rocks at me or food or something. I'd expect them to um, because they know that all babies matter. They know that Monroe's life matters. They, they understand that, but they're concerned about the 122,000 that lose their lives per day. And what's even scarier, just a caveat, um, that number has almost doubled since COVID-19 mm -hmm. began, you know, which is scary. Um, so we're concerned about that. So we're going to put focus on that. And we're going to say these babies' lives, aborted babies, their lives matter. It's the same thing with BLM. Um, we're concerned about the Black lives. So their lives matter. We want people to know that in this moment, not as part of the organization, um, but a, a part of the movement of what we're doing. Um, the last thing I'll say about BLM is a lot of people are like, well, how can I help? You know, like, what, what could I do? Uh, you know, I wanted to give to the organization BLM, uh, give some kind of financial support to them, but the agenda is sort of different. I'll tell you this, what's being asked for is absolutely free. Dignity, respect, changing of laws, making sure people are equal, doesn't cost a dime. Mm -hmm. It's the most free thing that anybody could ever do. When um, so, I think that's really useful, you know, just to um, be able to distinguish 
um, uh, and and also in the other term, you know, social justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a uh, you know malleable umbrella of all kinds of ideas. Uh, yeah. But when we critique it, like you just did, and say, look, there's we're not saying we're not saying it's not a racial thing necessarily. It's just saying there's a problem here that people are feeling and experiencing, and we want to address that by giving our support. We're not trying to cause a race issue that where it's like all lives matter, right? That's not the point. The point is there's some people hurting, and we want to draw attention to that. Uh, do you see something similar in the social justice uh, umbrella of terms? You know, I think there's a lot of that that's used to kind of bludgeon critics. Mm-hmm. But then yeah. what's what's the useful tact that maybe we can pull out of this term social justice? Yeah. So social justice, when you hear justice, at least me, I don't know, it's the way I think, you always think the opposite, right? So there must be injustice if we're talking about social justice. Um, and I think that when you hear the stories of African-Americans and you um, hear the stories of uh, people who have been murdered, um, even those who have committed crimes um, that have been murdered, um, you think to yourself, okay, there should have been a different way to approach this, you know, um, that respected life um, for this person. Uh, I was on a Zoom call earlier today um, for a uh, Lutheran Hour Ministries podcast, uh, and uh, I was on it with another African-American dynamic woman um, from Baltimore, Maryland, and she spoke about her uh, son who's been incarcerated for a few years, uh, and in speaking about her son, um, she had said that she wasn't able to communicate with him. She's black, you know, and he's black, wasn't able to communicate with him in jail. And, you know, and she had finally got a hold of guards after all this back and forth of of quite some time of not being able to communicate with him. And, um, and finally she got to, to someone who would talk to her and they said, well, he's been in the hospital, you know, he looked behind him um, and you're not supposed to do that in prison. Um, So he was beaten by a guard so bad that he had been in hospitalization. Um, for that last stretch of time, however long it was, he was there. Um, and then the person on the phone told her, you should expect this if he's in here. Nobody should ins- expect to be treated with a lack of love and respect as a human being. Nobody should expect that. Um, that's the injustice that's happening. Nobody should expect to be bludgeoned with words or bludgeoned with uh, phrases or uh, the way people make them feel um, just because of the color of their skin. The scariest thing about the George Floyd video to me, um, the saddest thing about it uh, is that someone knelt on somebody's neck, no matter what they did, right? And then people watched. Mm -hmm. The people watching part kills me. The officer watching part kills me. You know, we talk about it in our theology, sins of omission and sins of commission, you know, being just as guilty if you did it or if you stood by it, um, that's injustice to do that. Um, And zooming it back out into our own homes where it applies to us, um, you know, when you hear at the dinner table, the aunt or the uncle or the grandma or the grandpa say something off color uh, about race, um, are you thinking to yourself, "Mm, yeah, they're saying that, but they don't really mean it, and I'll just leave it be, you know, let's talk about sins of omission and sins of commission, and who's just as guilty for leaving it be, you know? Um, This is something that we have to fight, you know? 
Um, now, what I would bring into it that I think a lot of people who lack faith fail to understand, um, the one who fights for us is Jesus Christ, right? And we're to live by his justice. Um, but we fail to do that as Christians mm -hmm. all the time. I mean, look at us, three guys who have made a business off of um, preaching the same thing every three years. That's what the pericope is, right? We've been talking <laughs> about the same stuff for years now. Um, but we still have jobs. Why do we still have jobs? Why do people still show up at church? People still show up because they need to be reminded of who they are. They need to be reminded of their savior constantly. They need to constantly drown the old self, bring to life the new self. That's justice, you know, not just socially, um, but also societally uh, as it comes to the church. And and when you think of Luther's spheres, you know, of, of he, he has these spheres that kind of interact with each other of, of recreation and, and home and then church what's justice in all of those spheres it's justice for all via how jesus would treat us um and i'll just lastly say if we were going to write every little sin on jesus's body that he died for because he died with sin would racism be written on his body yes right mm -hmm. would every church member agree that racism as a sin would be written on his body. I think pastors have a personal responsibility mm -hmm. um, via our calling to make sure that the, the saints would all be in consensus on that, that this is a sin. Yeah. That's just Yeah, thank you. Um, talking about churches in particular, you know, and how we can do it, I think I'm going to read you a little bit from T.S. Eliot here because uh, just a, a good quote here, but then I want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the not-so-helpful things that we might think about doing. But this is uh, T.S. Eliot. He says, Half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. Uh, they don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it, because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. And so... With that inclination of human hearts to just do enough to think well of myself, you know, we think of kind of the uh, the social media memes. I'm going to pass that around. I'll feel a little better. What are some things that are maybe not so helpful that we as white Christians might do? And then on the flip side, what is something that actually would be meaningful and helpful that we in in the you know as a white Christian in a church might be? moving towards? It's a good question. Um, I think a not so helpful statement that a lot of white Christians are making at this time is it's not a big deal where I am because I don't really have any people of color or black people in my town. Um, you know, we got a statement that we say at Bethlehem, less selfie, more survey, we say, right? Um, so the the biggest god that that we fight right now in america today is self and if it doesn't revolve around in my world right if it's not with me then i don't need it at all whatsoever um the problem with that is that jesus disagrees with that wholly um jesus calls us to the other in such a way where we're fully serving them uh, in all the facets of our life and we're living an undivided life in doing that 
Um, we're not going to be the saint on Sunday uh, and the, the church goer, the church member. Uh, and then during the week, uh, we do whatever we want to do and we say whatever we want to say about people. Uh, Christ encourages us to season our conversations with salt always, right? Um, so how many of us are seasoning them with salt um, and how many of us are actually doing it with pepper? You know what I mean? Amen. <laughs> and a little spicy. Um, how many of us are doing that? Um, I think that overwhelmingly too many would, would be the answer, uh, not to quantify it at all, because we couldn't, um, but too many of us are doing that. Um, when you buy into that, um, well, it doesn't apply to me, it doesn't apply to me, you give the issue more power um, than it deserves uh, when you say that. You give the issue more power um, because you're saying that it is irrelevant to your world. Um, so why do I have to deal with it at all whatsoever? If it's relevant to my brother or my sister in Christ, it's relevant to me, you know? Um, and if it's sin, I want to call out sin. Uh, and I want to make sure that my other brothers and sisters are not doing that thing either, right? I want to call it out so that we can move forward together. The only way to move forward is to call that thing out. Um, also, Paul says the letter of the law kills. It does kill. Um, and, and the gospel makes us alive. We can all agree on that. Amen. Hallelujah. Yep. Right? Yep. Um, in order for it to kill, it's got to sting, right? That's a function of the law. Um, you feel a little bit of guilt, a little bit of hurt for doing what you did. Um, I'd encourage everybody who has no Black people in their town, which, by the way, I'm here to tell you, go ahead and look harder and make sure you have no black people in your town or people of color in your town. Pretty sure you do, you know, um, look for the people behind the counters and at Walmart and everywhere else. Pretty sure you do. But if you don't, in the off chance you live in small town America, you have no black people in your town. When you hear grandma say that at the dinner table, stand up to grandma. And if you're saying, well, I don't want to disrespect her, you know, as a person, um, I want you to go ahead and say to yourself that God uses people uh, to show other people how they are wrong, you know, um, and that grandma too is a sinner um, and grandma too needs to repent uh, and receive forgiveness. Should we do that with gentleness and respect or with a little bit of pepper on there? You know what? You know, I'm like, you guys thinking it how you want to. <laughs> a little hot sauce. Yeah, depends on grandma's health, I think. Yeah, but, That's right. Um, and can I just add to that a little bit just this is an observation i've seen is this and sometimes i i think i've seen on social media i can't read people's hearts but what i wonder is that if people will post things on social media that in their mind this meme or this picture or this story solves racism for me so so for example i'm gonna throw on a picture of a white police officer hugging a black child everything's fine in the world there's mm -hmm. no problems or i'm going to um, I'm going to remind everybody um, that, you know, most police officers are good, you know, and, and obviously we love and support law enforcement and, you know, but like that just, that makes it go away. Or another one might be, um, there's a, there's a video going around, uh, Candace, uh, what's her name? Candace, is it Owens? Owens. Yeah. And she, she's uh, black and she's saying there's, there's not a problem here you know, with race in America. And, and so I see white folks who will post that and I, and I wonder what's behind that. Is it to say, there's not a problem here. Um, yeah. See, this person's black and they're saying that it's not a problem. Um, yeah. I don't know if you experience that and see that too, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's like the spectrum that I talked about before, right? There are always going to be some Black folks that are like, ah, just forget about this. Who cares about it? It's whatever, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And then some people will, you're right, post that, capitalize on that and say, look at this one Black person that has said this. Um, Let me speak to that piece first. Um, A truism of African-Americans is that um, sometimes some white people, because I refuse to make generalizations, right? Sometimes some white people Um, will think that one African-American speaks for the entire community. Mm -hmm. um, And they're responsible for the entire narrative that is heard for that whole community. Um, And it's so prevalent and such another symptom of systemic racism that Black parents teach their kids about this. Um, My parents, I could hear their voice in my head saying, you have to work two times as hard. You have to be twice as smart. You know, you have to be twice as everything because they're going to look at you and you're a reflection on us. And they meant us as parents, but they meant the whole community. Um, that is not okay to put that type of pressure on a child. Uh, It is not okay to put that type of pressure on a community. Um, Zoom out and look at the entire community for a group of individuals bunched together, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, rather than this person or this incident of this Black kid hugging this police officer is my entire world. Go ahead and zoom out um, and let people represent themselves as individuals. Now, what people will unify and voice on is what a lot of individuals have been experiencing over time. That's what they'll unify in their voice over. And that's what we see happening right now. But don't, don't take those incidents and then drag them and cut them and paste them so that that piece of the narrative is the one that you can see. Um, go ahead and like I said before, walk with people of color listen to them, listen to their stories, the stories that I can tell you, I've got a million and I'm 30, you know, Um, my dad has had, he has told me 12 times as many stories as I know, Uh, probably has more than that. Every single, I dare anybody to talk to a person of color, specifically a black person, and ask if they have never had uh, an adverse experience and see what the answer is. You know, um, that begins to change you in your world Mm -hmm. um, and begins to make you see outside of yourself a little bit more. Um, To that, one thing that we notoriously can't do, men are especially bad at doing it, we cannot see our own biases and we cannot see where we are wrong on our own. Um, We need the perspective of somebody else, right? I need my wife to tell me, you know, that looked good 10 pounds ago, you know, but right now (laughs) it doesn't look too good, you know? I need my wife to say that Mm. to me because my view of how I might look, like I might think I look buff in a shirt. She's like, oh no, it's just tight, you know? Um, (laughs) That view from the outside is what is needed in everyday life with everybody. Everybody needs those other voices to say, you know, I see where you're going, but look at this or listen to that to kind of change their perspective uh, and give them different goggles when it comes to what they're looking at. It, Pastor Bowling, if there was a if there's a book, a couple books, just a couple titles that you would say, here's some books I just wish that my white friends in the church would read, what would you recommend? Shoot, I got a lot. Um, Here's three things that I really recommend. These are like my top three. Okay. Um, Number one, my partner, John Schmicke, is writing a book. It'll be out next month on urban ministry. 
Um, and it speaks to these issues. And he's white, guys. He's white, right? And he's mm-hmm. been serving a Black community. Um, and he's, he's speaking about that tension as well. Um, and, and it's speaking about the city as a forgotten place. That would be a resource I really recommend. I've already read it. It's great. It's fresh. It's within the Lutheran church body, too. Um, so that's really good. Um, white Awake. I always want to call it Wide Awake. White Awake. Uh, is a book that's written from a Christian perspective on issues um, that are in the Black community um, and how to reconcile communities to Christ, but also how to reconcile communities to um, certain changes that they need to embrace um, as they lily pad to other changes. That's a really good book. Um, And what I love about it, again, is it's written from a Christian perspective, because you got to watch the perspectives on some of the stuff that you read, too. Um, uh, Well, I said I I do three, but I've got four. A third one is a podcast uh, by a girl. Her name is Layla, and her podcast podcast is just called Layla. Um, And every single day, she puts up a little bit of information for people to chew on um, about white supremacy, um, issues facing the Black community that may be little known, things like that. She puts out a little thing for you to chew on every day. You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? We're eating the elephant one bite at a time. So that kind of stuff, 365, you know, um, 24-7 is the stuff that changes you over time. A fourth thing that I'd recommend for any community or town or church even, um, there is a class called Witnessing Whiteness um, that you can order from uh, online. Um, You can go to their website. Uh, They'll help you find a teacher to teach that course. Um, And it goes through all these different issues that I just talked about. And I touched upon it for like two minutes at a time. But redlining, systemic racism, white privilege, all those things that you hear, those buzz terms that might be confusing, it it speaks to those issues. And you get homework just like every other class. And you come back and you talk about it. Um, I'd recommend that. And look at me, I'm doing another resource. Another resource, uh, Bible study by Keith Haney on racial injustice came out from CPH last year. Um, It's still in print right now. Again, really fresh as a resource. Um, Really great for a Lutheran congregation or small group to go through. Worth the money for sure to get the workbook as well uh, and go through both of those things at the same time. Um, And so those would be some resources, I guess, five I named rather than three. Mm -hmm. Pastor Bowling, do you have about 10 more minutes? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I don't want to infringe on your time because, but but I just, I have so many questions. Um, Keep going. But so, you know, so a book I've, I've been reading, I think it was recommended through the Gospel Coalition, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, it's uh, The Color of Complicity by, uh, I think it's uh, Jamal Tisby, I believe. Okay. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in, in it, he really kind of lays out the history of the church and issues of slavery, segregation, racism. And, and one of the things that's just really just difficult to come to grips with is the way that, that, theological justifications right for for just being complicit in these issues and and i'm just wondering if do you think that sometimes even in our own lutheran church missouri synod that we might misuse some of our theological categories or theological heritage uh to just kind of shrug off racism and say oh this isn't a big deal it's not my experience you know let's not get into social justice and things like that um could you speak to that a little bit I think that our theology is perfect. I wouldn't be a Lutheran if I, I agree didn't. too. Let's let's be clear. <laughs> I think it is perfect. I think it is on point. Yes. Um, saved by grace. You know, um, the the stuff that we do. Here's what I think is the struggle. Sometimes people in our church body 
um, will take our theology and they'll strip it of sociology. Mm-hmm. They'll apply it to where they're at. They'll freeze it and they'll keep serving it. You know, I had a friend, a friend here in town, a pastor friend, not a Lutheran pastor that says, you know, sometimes Lutheran pastors and the way you guys live and move, you know, we're, it's like other churches are serving hot dinners and you guys are serving TV dinners. It's frozen food. <laughs> it does the job, right? Boom. Boom. <laughs> um, and I had to fight with him. I'm like, yeah. no, our theology is perfect. It's good yeah. theology. He's mm-hmm. like, I'm not talking about your theology. I'm talking about the way you live. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, our theology is the way we live. You know, like, that's the same thing. We yeah. believe that. Um, he's like, no, you know, the, the way that the church moves, you know, saying I'm a German church body. Mm-hmm. Um, saying that our old German heritage. You know what he told me? And it knocked me off my feet. He's like, I went to Germany last year. Nobody knew what a Lutheran was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. yeah newsflash. Right? I was like, what? Yeah. Um, and then I had to Google it, right? We Google everything we hear that's uh-huh. contrary to our narrative. So, yeah, you know, German years ago, not Germany today. A lot of churches in Germany today are nightclubs, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, I'm not trying to strip the LCMS of old German heritage um, or anything like that. But what I encourage them to look at is the fact that um, our theology is meant to breathe in the communities um, where our churches are located. And we believe the Lord is the Lord of the church uh, and that he loves all people. And so we're not going to specify things in certain ways sociologically because it makes us feel really good. Potlucks were never written in the scriptures. They just occur. You know, um, the little incident, incidents of race uh, were never written in the scriptures. They, they just occur in congregations. And just because they make us feel comfortable it might not always mean that it's welcoming either, right? Um, we've got to change the way we do some of that stuff um, that we do in order to make it approachable to other groups of people, not compromising our theology at all whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Because I said, our theology is perfect. Um, the way we live out our faith sometimes has a lot of, uh, we're blindsided yeah. you know, or we're, we're, our perspective is narrow rather. In St. Louis, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking about, um, I agree with you. Like, I think uh, recently uh, there was an article online uh, talking about how both the ELCA and the LCMS, uh, John Nunes put this up, have Love are, are mostly white. They're, you know, like they're one of the most monolithic groups, mostly one. And I, I just think there's a bit of a tragedy there because our theology has such capacity, mm-hmm. especially if we think about what we believe about the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's table, the body of Christ, the priesthood of all believers, and vocation. Like, we're just, our deck is stacked, but somehow we just can't quite, uh, m- most of us, mo- most of our congregations can't get through that wall of uh, cultural comfort or mm-hmm. being hospitable enough to to open up beyond our our ethnic tribes. Yeah. So do you see anything where our theology should be leading us through these things, but maybe uh, how, how might we might push through those things? Yeah. I see it all over our theology. Um, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. You know, that is like a main tenet in our place, um, in everyone's place who's, who's LCMS. Um, there is an all-over feel to that, right? Um, that grace is for everybody. 
um, that it showers on everyone. Um, how are we presenting that to other community groups that don't look like us, who might not have the same denominational devotion that's built into the LCMS? One thing we do know about the LCMS is that it is truly a family religion, right? There's a strong denominational devotion. So if my dad was Lutheran, my grandpa was Lutheran, my cousin was Lutheran, all those other, you know, it's, there's a lot of connections. Where's the missional focus to get new people uh, to come to the faith? And I don't just mean new people of color, new black people. Um, I mean new people in general who are outside of our family. Um, we're a really high context religion. Um, we're a really high context denomination. You've got to know a lot of little micro things to be Lutheran, um, and that's hard. How do you make that information more um, approachable? Um, is a question that congregations have to ask themselves. On top of that, um, don't ask your members to leave their culture at the door and pick up your new culture. Um, so, you know, if I'm authentically Black, right, and I want to be Lutheran, I got to say, uh, before I'm Black, I'm Lutheran. And so I'm, I've got to do this thing, that thing, this thing, and cherish our hymns because there are old hymns and do this and do that um, and pick all that stuff up. But I got to leave my Black card at the door and become a part of this group. Don't ask people to leave behind who they are in order to pick up who you are and offer them a space where they can meet Jesus authentically and be themselves as they meet him, as he transforms them constantly to a new creation uh, until he takes them home to be with him. Um, and that looks different everywhere. You know, um, it shouldn't look the same, um, but that approachability is needed in every congregation. Yeah. And I, you know, I think our theology, you know, Lutheran, which is just really biblical theology, you know, Christ centered, yeah. grace centered by faith alone, like, you know, has so much to say to, to all of these issues. Uh, and, and, and really, I think gives us the permission to be really honest, you know, about sin, right? Because we can admit the worst about ourselves and God gives us the best. And, um, but I think sometimes I see in our church body that there's this tendency to maybe use, misuse theology to kind of be a safeguard, like, you know, oh, stuff about, you know, social justice, that's moralism, you know, I'm not going to get into that. And and I yeah. think that just ends up not working out well on any level. Um, and I also wonder about how sometimes maybe in, you know, in mostly white church bodies, we assume that maybe page 5 and 15 from TLH or the Lutheran hymnal is like that is the standard way of doing worship, and there it's might divine. be these. It's coming yeah. down from heaven, <laughs> right. and then yeah. you know, but and there's other ethnic groups that might do their own things, and those are their own contexts. But here, this is really the way you're supposed to do it, yeah. and recognizing that, no, <laughs> uh, yeah. like well, you know, the church started was in Africa, you know, and yeah. and and also in Europe and also in Asia, you know, just that kind of. We just assume things, I think, and yeah. We make things a rule that were never a rule in the Lutheran mm -hmm. church, we tend to do that. Um, I remember growing up, in, just a short story, but growing up in New York, um, the first Lutheran church I went to, my, so my pastor, the first Lutheran pastor I had, his name was Christoph Schultz, um, and big shout out to him, really smart guy, great preacher, uh, great teacher. Um, so at that church, we would always throw out um, our, uh, we had this special sink to throw out our communion stuff, right? That led to the outside. 
and it'd have to be thrown out in that sink or else, you know, just whatever. Um, and so I remember uh, my first time uh, visiting a church in Chicago, a Lutheran church, and they're getting their communion stuff thrown out for the day and they just throw it outside, right? And I'm like, ah, <laughs> you know, don't do that. Where's your sink to put the stuff on the outside? Uh, and they're like, yeah, we don't have one of those, you know, we just throw it out here. And I'm like, but you know, you gotta have one. And they're like, what rule says we have to have one? And I'm like, mm, I guess there's not a rule that says you have to have one, you know? Um, but we make those rules up. We like to make little things up and, mm -hmm. and, and attach it to uh, scripture somehow and say, well, there's a reason the carpet is red. You know, or Luther like, said. Like yeah, yeah. Like it, it's, Luther said the carpet should be red today. Right, right, yeah. um, but that never happened, you mm -hmm. know, um, really strip stuff down to what Jesus said and what Luther wrote, uh, which is what Jesus said, right? Um, and you won't find that. Uh, so churches need to go on their own journey with that and their own journey with how to be inclusive as well. Um, the way to go on that journey is to start it from someplace. Maybe you've started it a little while ago. Some churches have. Um, but maybe this incident is the start of how we go on that journey together, um, ordering a Bible study and talking about it or, mm -hmm. or getting a speaker to come in, you know, and speak from the outside or whatever else. That's an important thing to do. But, you know, one of, a really, really important thing to do, too, uh, is making sure that we as pastors are speaking to our people about it. Because um, our people, they'll watch the news and they'll watch Al Sharpton or whoever else is preaching and they'll watch all that stuff. But who do they want to hear from? They want to hear from their pastor. Mm -hmm. what, is, what does my pastor have to say about this? Yeah. You know, um, I want to know how to feel, but like, what is my pastor saying? Um, you know, that's, that's the ministry God has called us to, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Paths untrodden. We've trodden a lot of paths. We right, didn't know right. what happened in 2020 um, and to ventures unknown, so... Well, I think we're going to wrap up here. Pastor Tim and I, we always got a, this issue where we go over time. <laughs> we're notorious for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we're just so thankful for the time you've given us and, and really appreciate you sharing. And, you know, I, I think just to close, I, I want to echo something. Uh, Pastor Jeff Clater, mutual friend of ours, posted an article on his blog today, uh, Six Gen. Uh, we think we've, we've recommended Plugged that people read before, that yeah. before. So another yeah. commercial. But... Um, you know, he what he said really resonated with me is that, you know, this wouldn't just be a conversation that you have and then you just kind of let it go and it becomes a, a thing of the past. And and I think for some people, that's what it's going to be, right? It's going to be, we had this conversation, we went to this peaceful protest, I had my sign, you know, yep. I, and that, but like, can this be like a continual walking together conversation that develops into relationships and partnerships with churches and 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 really even you know why didn't we have this conversation earlier so um that's i, I hope that can happen i pray that happens and, and thank you for being a, a part of of uh yeah just answering our questions and listening appreciate your voice yeah. and appreciate your your leadership and your intellect too as you're that's as you're nice. helping us to think well about these things Good. thanks so guys thanks we're gonna high five you through the there you go okay <laughs> Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. And God's blessings to you guys at your spot where you're at uh, as you educate your people and help navigate them through unprecedented times, just crazy times uh, in ministry. So, yep, All blessings right. to you as well. Thanks, Pastor Yep.
right. Well, thank you for joining us uh, for another episode of Every Moment His. I hope this has been informative and it's, it's helped you to grow as you seek to uh, bring God's justice um, into all peoples, all nations, as we try to live out being a disciple of Jesus Christ in our age. Join us next time uh, for another conversation as we dive into our next sermon, uh, which we are going through the sermon series rooted right now. God's peace.